Hi, everyone, and welcome to the 36th episode of the DCVC podcast. I'm your host, Akash Bhatt, and I bring you leading investors investing in tech startups in India. This is a very special episode for me, and I'm super proud of it, and I can't wait to share it with every one of you. My guest today needs no introduction, but before we head in and talk with him and about him, let's take a quick minute to introduce some exciting initiatives in the DC Startups of the Week segment. With one small caveat, this week we'll be featuring a new fund on the block. First up, we have Pluck, India's first mobile storytelling platform for meaningful stories by unfound mobile creators. I have personally enjoyed watching some of their content, and I urge you all to check it out too. Log on to plug.tv, that's P-L-U-C dot TV to learn more. Second up, we have Pathway Ventures, a new venture capital fund focused on the human side of the future work. They are investing in companies that drive economic mobility through innovative models of earning, learning, and community building. If you're building something in this space, reach out to C.R. Raj Purohit on LinkedIn or through their investment application on pathwayvc.com. That's P-A-T-H-W-A-Y hyphen VC.com. Now on to this week's episode. I'm super excited to be sharing my conversation with Chris Gopalakrishnan. Chris needs no introduction whatsoever, but for the few out there who aren't familiar with him, Chris is the co-founder and former CEO of Infosys and currently serves as a chairman of Axelor Ventures, an early stage seed fund based out of Bangalore. He's recognized as a global business and technology thought leader and was voted the top CEO in Institutional Investors inaugural ranking of Asia's top executives and selected as one of the winners of the second Asian Corporate Director Recognition Awards by Corporate Governance Asia in 2011. He also was selected to Thinkers 50, an elite list of global business thinkers in 2009. He was elected president of India's Apex Industry Chamber Confederation of Indian Industry, CII, for 2013 and 14, and served as one of the co-chairs of the World Economic Forum in Davos in January 2014. In Jan 2011, the government of India also awarded Mr. Gopalakrishnan the Padma Bhushan, the country's third highest civilian honor. I am thrilled to have had this opportunity to speak with him, and I'm excited to share this episode with each and every one of you. So without further ado, let's head in and listen to Chris. So it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show today. But before we proceed, I'd like to thank Venkrishnan for making this happen and Shalini on the New Ventures team for coordinating everything. So it couldn't have been possible without them. So you're someone who's been there and built that over you know, the last 20 to 30 years, and you've built one of the most recognizable brands in India. And you're now paying it forward by backing entrepreneurs who are going down the same path of once which you did. So I'm thrilled to have you on the show, and I'm really excited about talking to you over the next 60 minutes or so. Thank you, Akash. It's uh, fun to be here with you. Fantastic. So I want to begin the conversation by first congratulating you on your appointment as the first chairperson of the Reserve Bank Innovation Hub, otherwise known as RBIH. What does this personally mean to you and what can we expect from a startup ecosystem perspective? Uh, from a personal perspective, it's uh, 
an opportunity to actually um, contribute back again because uh, you know it's 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 a it's an opportunity to uh, look at uh, what startups require what innovators require and then coordinated back with the Reserve Bank of India to provide that, you know, let's say regulatory changes or mentoring or advice, uh, et cetera. And for Reserve Bank, it's a, it's a uh, peek into what innovators are doing in the FinTech sector. Um, so uh, it's, it's an opportunity for regulators to understand, uh, you know, where uh, innovations are going. Um, uh, what do I expect to happen? Uh, I feel that uh, uh, if we can um, we can uh, uh, bring technology, uh, especially digital technology, to uh, help uh, startups uh, in the fintech sector uh, create some innovative products, uh, it'll be good uh, for the country. Uh, it'll be good to uh, improve access, uh, it'd be good to look at financial inclusion. India has a long way to go still and uh, I know, leverage uh, technology uh, through this to improve financial inclusion, reduce cost of transaction, etc. Now, how big of a challenge is this in terms of the things that you just spoke about? There are so many opportunities for uh, the uh, the RBI to be looking and working with close stakeholders. But where did this intention come from? Saying we got to start something of our own, rather than tying up with ecosystem partners. So um, both happen, right? Uh, uh, many of the public sector undertakings, many of the government uh, uh, departments are already working with startups. Some of them have uh, uh, either directly set up uh, innovation hubs or work with uh, existing innovation hubs. All kinds of models are uh, actually being tried. Uh, you know, from let's say 2015, when the prime minister announced, uh, you know, Startup India, Standup India and all that stuff, every government ministry and department is encouraged. Every state is state government is also encouraged to work with startups. And uh, RBI has been working with startups, uh, working with uh, uh, innovation hubs. Uh, now they've decided to set up their own. Uh, I also see that uh, the central banks in various parts of the world have set up their own innovation hubs. So RBI is also uh, following that trend. Well, I'm really excited about what the future holds here for uh, RBIH. Really excited what the next couple of years looks like. And we'll probably um, you know, speak to you at a later stage in the future as well and try and see how this has panned out. But I wanted to wind the clock back a few years. You know, We have many listeners who are also founders or want to be founders in the near future. You were a small team when you initially began, but you know you then grew into a massive company when you took over as a CEO. What can you share with our founders uh, today from your experience at Enforces and what insights can be taken away about building companies in today's world? Uh, first of all, uh, you know the world was very different when we started way back in 1981. Uh, most people, uh, especially 
you know, millennials, etc., don't realize that there was a world without internet, there was a world without mobile phones, etc. Uh, when uh, Infosys was founded, PC was just introduced, and it was a era of mainframe computing. Uh, India was a closed economy, so that's another uh, difference. Uh, the third is uh, the concept of venture capital, etc. was just maybe getting in the US, getting started in the US, and in India it was unheard of. Uh, so very, very different uh, era, actually. And fast forward to today, I see a world of difference. Uh, we have multiple unicorns in India. India is the third best uh, location for doing startups. Uh, we, I see uh, tremendous uh, confidence in uh, youngsters today, uh, startup founders, etc. And uh, and and uh, you know, it's it's you know that's why India is the third best location for startups today. So what has been the key takeaways from your time as a co-founder as well as the CEO at Infosys? And how can that experience or insights that you've gained during that period be shared with our founders? What can they take away from, uh, so, even, you know? Yeah, first is, um, you know, um, you have to create an organization that is continuously learning. Right. Uh, right, uh, you know, when, when you look at growth, um, you know, every uh, stage of that growth, you have to create new capabilities, uh, you know, going from, uh, let's say, 10 employees to 100 employees to 1,000 employees. Uh, what happens is at some point, you have to formalize your HR systems. You have to formalize your communications. You have to do sort, you know, new, new things. And, and, and this will require either bring in um, that knowledge from outside or will require you to learn. So to me, first thing is you have to build an organization that's continuously learning uh, because part of growing up is actually uh, learning new skills, new capabilities, etc., and leveraging those to grow, right? Uh, and and uh, we built in Infosys an organization that's continuously learning. In fact, uh, you know, uh, if you if you look back at Infosys, we were one of the first uh, in the IT industry to create a complete ecosystem for training, education, etc. Significant investment. Uh, I would say the largest corporate university even today uh, is what Infosys has built. Uh, the second is, um, uh, you know, for any organization, uh, you know, growth is a must. If you don't grow, you actually die. For employees, they want uh, uh, more responsibilities. They want uh, higher uh, take-home pay. They want uh, uh, better visibility. They want uh, to see their company grow. Uh, for customers, you know, they want more products and services uh, so that you can grow with them. They can grow with you. Uh, investors want to see growth. So growth is a given and growth is a must, actually. Uh, and the third thing is, um, uh, you know, if you're in the technology space, and today every business is a technology business, I would say, uh, you have to uh, leverage technology to create new capabilities to improve your competitiveness in the marketplace. So I can go on and on. You know, there's so many uh, learnings uh, from that Infosys journey 
you know, one interesting thing I'll talk about is, uh, you know, we leveraged uh, uh, the financial markets as a tool for branding and sales and marketing. So Infosys was the first company to uh, list in a US uh, exchange from India. And the reason for doing that was not to raise the money. Of course, we, we, will, we, we, we use that money, but the primary reason was that we wanted to uh, leverage that for creating a brand for Infosys in the US markets. Um, see, when uh, our customers open the Wall Street Journal in the morning or look at CNBC or something like that, um, when they see how Infosys is performing, how it's uh, doing better than many of the services companies, uh, local service companies, they would definitely notice that, right? So we leverage that as a tool for sales and marketing, branding, building visibilities with the CIO community, the CEO community in our uh, client organizations and things like that. So there are many, many lessons uh, in which I can share. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, going back to the first point where you spoke about building sustainable businesses and growing teams, you know, I. I want to bring up a very recent example that's that's top of mind for everybody. I understand it's a very difficult time to build sustainable businesses with everything that's happening around us. If we take the recent example of White Hat Junior and Baiju, you know, the Desi VC or, you know, the uh, investors today in India face a very tough road ahead because the local entrepreneurs or the Indian entrepreneurs are surrounding themselves with indoor team members and an utterly broken moral code. You know, nothing sustainable can be built in the long run with, when teams are built this way. How does one tackle this? And how do we build sustainable businesses with good governance? And what role do VCs play here, in your opinion? First of all, uh, you know, this is not unique to India. Uh, this happens everywhere. You have failures in Silicon Valley also. Uh, fantastic uh, failures. Um, you know, you, you, you look at, uh, uh, I forget the company, Elizabeth Holt, right? Uh, and uh, what happened with that company, the Biotech Terranos. company. yeah. Right, Terranos. And, and uh, I think there is another uh, um, recent example of, um, you know, a company uh, that's been uh, facing some challenges, uh, Robinhood, from an investment perspective. Right. So there are many examples everywhere. And this is... Uh, uh, unfortunately, um, you know, something that uh, you see in uh, every sector, every country, every ecosystem, uh, as investors, you need to, uh, you know, be careful, be involved, uh, you know, try and uh, get into details, etc. Uh, sometimes uh, in the heat of things, sometimes wanting to actually uh, capture a deal, you know, the, the due diligence uh, suffers probably, and I, I, I do not know what happened, etc. And I can't uh, talk about specific uh, uh, instances of, uh, you know, why it happened, what happened, etc. Uh, but it's, it's part of any ecosystem and uh, uh, the entire ecosystem suffers because of that. Uh, I know I can uh, give you an example from uh, the IT services industry. You know, you may or you may not know about the Satyam fiasco. Right. 
right? Satyam uh, spectacularly collapsed uh, one fine day uh, when they said that uh, our uh, revenues were all inaccurate, right? Right, uh, and and this is a company that's publicly listed, had a huge uh, number of investors around the world, large customer base, uh, thousands of employees, etc. But uh, the industry worked hard to rebuild its reputation, uh, worked hard to make sure that not even a single customer of Satyam, right? Not even a single customer of Satyam uh, was impacted. And, uh, and, and uh, we, we, we um, recovered the situation and that's what we need to do. Uh, you know, every stakeholder must, uh, uh, must uh, see how uh, you know they can restore the confidence in that sector. No, that's a great point that you make because sometimes what happens uh, with early stage investors, at least from my experience, is that some of them don't take both seats or cannot afford to take both seats. And when these companies grow at scale, uh, especially when you raise your Series D, E beyond stages, you get to a point where growth and revenues is given a lot more importance than just governance as such. And when you reach a point when a company is perhaps going public or reaches the point where it's a couple of years from going public, some of these issues start to start to come out in the public, right? Like a lot of, lot of attention is, is, is given to this. What can early stage investors do in this process to ensure that some of their investments, which have reached a point of maturity, don't really get massively affected in the long run? So what can they do at the early stage, given that you at Axler are also very early stage investors? See, um, you know, there are no simple solutions. You know, it is to actually um, uh, get feedback from, uh, you know, the customers of the company, employees of the company. So, you know, constantly monitor, constantly get feedback, constantly uh, look at the financials, you know, question uh, uh, things. For example, you know, uh, recently, I was reviewing a company and suddenly I realized that, uh, you know, their accounts receivable was building up. Uh, you know, they're showing spectacular growth, but accounts receivable was growing equally fast, right? right. Um, so that actually, uh, you know, was a red flag for me. And uh, I wanted to get into more details, uh, you know, look at uh, which customers are not paying, what is the, a uh, number of days of uh, um, you know delay and things like that. Uh, you know, uh, ask them to put up a plan for uh, collecting that money, etc. Because if your product is good, if the customer is happy, they will definitely pay you, right? So this is a red flag. So you have to get into details, and that is how uh, you may you may get uh, uh, you know some early warning signals and things like that. Now for early stage investors, especially angel investors, they are not involved with the company most of the time. And, and what happens is, you know, there is a lead investor in a round and you're dependent on the lead investor to do the due diligence, to actually work with the company, et cetera. And the rest of the investors are co-investors in some sense. Um, so, you know, th that's where I'm saying that uh, there is a responsibility on everybody in the ecosystem right. to ensure that, uh, uh, you know, you you don't uh, uh, hurt that ecosystem because any such incident uh, hurts everybody. Absolutely. 
in the long term the uh, after effects kind of is left behind for everybody else to uh, to suffer now there's a great point that you made where you talked about um, you know attention to detail and how vcs might really pay must pay attention to it at the early stages now this has been a very unusual year for everybody you know perhaps spending a little more time with the entrepreneurs is something vcs can't afford to do in person or haven't been able to do as much as they'd like to because of the pandemic how has this affected you and axelor from an investment perspective what are some of the learnings that you have had yourself so at axelor we have been reviewing every single company every month uh, getting into details one uh, good thing about uh, the pandemic is that you know because there is no commute there is no travel there are no distractions you tend to actually uh, spend a lot of time with your investing companies and uh, that's what i see with uh, many of the funds that i work with also uh, they 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 are actually doing lot more reviews than normal and uh, uh, deeper reviews uh, than normal yes you don't uh, you know get the informal chit chat and uh, uh you know face to face interaction but uh, uh, but you are spending quality time with the uh, with the company and and that's what i see happening across uh, i also see that um, by and large uh, uh, the startup ecosystem in india has survived you know uh, the unicorns have raised uh, uh, you know rounds of funding even during this pandemic um, some of the good companies have raised funding and and most companies are surviving actually yes some of them are struggling but they're surviving you know would you also say that there's been a slight change even at the early stage where vcs typically take a bet on the founders and then kind of let product market fit and within the business models kind of take its course would you say there's been a slight shift because a lot more time has been spent on diligence a lot more time has been spent towards thinking about business models and if this business model is going to be something that will work out in the future so has the pandemic really shifted the focus for even early stage investors to be looking beyond just the founding teams so at axelor we always have a um, you know kind of 360 degree review of uh, uh, the company you know even though we Uh, are the first uh, institutional vc working with these companies you know we work in the first two years of uh, starting the business um, we look at uh, the founders founding team we look at the idea we actually um, do some um, calls about uh, uh, the the uh, customer fit the market fit all of that we do uh, of course we know that um, now there may be a, a pivot required etc but we do the diligence very carefully uh, and and we do that because unless we know that we can help the company we don't take it forward uh, so it's it's not about you know just investing uh, because our investments are uh, small ticket investments uh, we we typically invest 25 lakhs which is uh, what uh, $30000 something like that right 30 40000 so it's it's we start with a very small investment and uh, and and uh, and then scale up actually so um, we we do our uh, uh, due diligence very carefully uh, so that we know that we can help the company we know that uh, 
we can make the connections that are required, etc. So we actually talk to potential customers. Uh, we talk to potential investors from the VC community. In fact, uh, in many of our uh, uh, diligences, we have uh, people from our network of VCs sitting in because they get an early visibility into the companies that we invest. So Venk, of course, uh, has been uh, part of some of these uh, diligence and things like that, though he may not invest at that point. Right. No, it's a, it's a great segue into trying to understand a little more about Axlor. You know, the team over at Axlor has decades of operating experience and in a way you've kind of brought part of the band back together, having some of your ex-colleagues and board members from your Infosys days to join you on the venture journey. What was the inflection point for you personally, when did you decide that you wanted to take a plunge into mainstream venture capital? Because correct me if I'm wrong here, you were already investing as an angel. So what made you and the team decide in 2014 that this was the right time to be getting into the VC business? Uh, so till I stepped down from Infosys in 2014, October, I was not investing. Okay. Okay. So all this started after I stepped down. Okay. And uh, I had to reinvent myself uh, because, um, uh, you know, I decided that I'm not going to, you know, uh, spend time in the IT services industry competing with Infosys. So I had to uh, find out uh, something else to do. Uh, second, uh, uh, the days of me uh, playing an operating role uh, is over. Uh, I do that uh, with the uh, family uh, investment uh, fund, but uh, I don't um, work as an operating person in any company anymore. Uh, and hence, uh, you know, uh, I decided to do two, three things. One, I decided to, uh, you know, we all decided to create Axelor. And we have actually a uh, operating team uh, which are all professionals, uh, not just the founders, but we have uh, professionals uh, who actually do the, uh, you know, the whole process of uh, uh, supporting a startup from uh, identifying, running the accelerator batch, um, you know, keeping track of performance, looking at, uh, you know, uh, how mentoring is happening because for every company that uh, we uh, fund, we actually create a mentor uh, network for them. Uh, we do the customer connections. All of these are actually done uh, in a systematic professional way. So what uh, we brought in is a, uh, you know, is a template to help uh, uh, these companies succeed. And that's why in the due diligence also, we're very careful to choose companies that we believe we can help. Right, uh, and the other things I did was uh, I said that uh, I must now identify two three areas to uh, work in, and I chose healthcare and agriculture. And so most of my uh, time is spent in uh, healthcare or in agriculture, other than of course working with Axlor. Uh, and uh, this includes both philanthropic as well as investments. Very interesting. It's great to see the journey from being an operator into a VC and how it's kind of unfolded 
new chapters for you. Now, what has really surprised you about venture capital? I'm pretty sure, you know, you during your time at Infosys as well, and, you know, you were exposed to the VC industry, you had very strong relationship with people in the VC uh, industry as well. But being in the thick of it, what has really taken you by surprise in the last few years? Uh, I, I don't know, you know, it's not surprise, it's learning, you know, um, because uh, I wasn't, uh, you know, uh, that much clued into the venture uh, uh, space when I was with Infosys. Um, you know, we did invest in uh, companies in, within Infosys, but as a strategic investment with a eye to acquire and things like that. So that's very different from investment for returns. Right. Right. Um, so very different, actually. Uh, and so there was a lot of learning uh, for me uh, about that industry. Uh, building the network uh, was very important. Um, the other uh, uh, change is to uh, shift your mindset from uh, operating uh, person to uh, somebody who coaches, mentors, advises, uh, because your tendency is, uh, let me get involved and solve the problem, right? right? Uh, then it does not help actually. Uh, so you have to let the uh, team, the, the startup uh, figure out. And sometimes, uh, you know, you give an advice and say, you decide now what to do. You don't force the decision. Right. Uh, so that's what you need to do. So it's a very uh, different way of doing things uh, from uh, what I was used to at Infosys because I was operating person at that point. Um, other than that, uh, um, you know, initially before uh, we could build the brand, it was a challenge because, um, you know, uh, you know, you you suddenly set up a uh, fund or a accelerator, you don't get the best companies in spite of, um, you know, the the um, you know the pedigree of the founders, etc. Because uh, yes, okay, you you were successful at Infosys and entrepreneur, but you have not proved yourself as an investor. Right. Right. But today, after uh, you know five six years, actually, uh, we have seen significant uh, change. The brand has helped, uh, and we do get now some of the best uh, uh, startup to apply to us, and we have about forty five plus uh, uh, VC funds as part of a network uh, who actually source their uh, uh, deals from our cohorts and things like that. And, and over the year, we have become the largest accelerator in India, the third largest seed fund in India. So it's working out well. So time's really gone on to prove that, uh, you know, this is, this is a business that kind of has been working for you as well. Now, when you first started off, how much pressure was it for you and the team to deliver exceptional results for your LPs, given the stellar reputation that you that you and the team had going into this business? We were uh, lucky that we didn't take anybody else's money. It's our own money, right? Okay. The GPs are the LPs. Oh, fantastic. Right? Okay. Right. So, um, I know we, we, we didn't want to take external funding. Uh, having said that, yes, there is uh, pressure to perform, but, uh, you know, we, we 
have, um, you know, we, we have um, created Infosys. Infosys is a uh, company that still continues to do well. And, uh, and, and that uh, does help when we talk to founders, the credibility does help. Uh, but being an investor, we have to prove ourselves over time. We have done that. I think a good question to ask here and drawing comparisons to your time, both as a founder and, and a CEO at Infosys is, how has your risk appetite changed? You know, as a founder or, or as a CEO, how much risk were you willing to take? And today as a VC, how much risk are you willing to take given that you know now it's your money that's kind of gone into the VC business? Again, uh, you know, um, it's um, it's two different things actually. You know, um, when you are um, running a public uh, company, uh, you have to make sure that, uh, uh, you know, you, you don't... Um, give a shock to any one of the stakeholders. Uh, you don't surprise them. Uh, you have to uh, try and uh, uh, be transparent. You have to make sure that uh, uh, you, you know, when, when there is a challenge, when there is a problem, uh, you give um, early warning to the uh, stakeholders. It's very, very important. And stakeholders, just not investors alone, you know, employees, uh, your customers, etc. You need to uh, be transparent. And, and we have had instances of um, uh, surprises uh, along the way. In 1995, uh, we lost the GE contract. We walked away, actually, uh, because of the terms and conditions. But at that point, GE was 40% of our business and 25% of our profits. Right, a huge impact. Similarly, when the internet bubble burst in 2001, overnight, you know, the next day, uh, we gave the results and the next day the market opened and the price crashed by 40%, right? Because we, we, we had said that uh, we, we will grow by only 35% because the previous year we grew 100%. So the stock crashed by 40%. So there have been challenges and uh, we have managed that. Uh, today, you know, our, uh, yes, it's our money that we are playing with, but still uh, we are very careful not to actually uh, surprise uh, the, the companies, the founders. Uh, we are very careful that um, uh, because, you know, our cohorts tomorrow becomes inputs to uh, our uh, network of VCs, right? Uh, so we don't want to uh, point a bad company to them, right? Uh, recommend a uh, bad company to them. So we don't, so, you know, the perception of risk is different, but risk is risk. And risk is all about, uh, you know, managing uh, the, the downside as much as possible for all your stakeholders. And we do that even today. So today, if I were to ask you this question, where are you comfortable taking risk and where are you not comfortable taking risk, what would your answer be? See, taking risk with money is uh, uh, not the issue. Uh, the bigger risk is reputation. The bigger risk is the brand. Bigger risk is uh, hurting your stakeholders. Uh, money will come and go. You know, you need one good deal and you make up that. 
Right. Uh, so we have always uh, believed that uh, yes, you need to be careful with money, but the bigger risk is about reputation, brand, uh, hurting your stakeholders, and things like that. So in this competitive VC market today, where early stage funds are almost competing with these larger um, funds as well, who are now getting into this space. Speaking about reputation, speaking about the doggy dog world, in spite of having a good VC network that kind of is trying to source and kind of collaboratively work together, how do you protect the reputation while fighting for exciting deals and ensure that you don't put your reputation at risk here? Because at, in 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 the uh, in, you know in, in in the fight for getting these deals, sometimes they, you might end up being a little hasty. See, uh, that, that's the learning actually and uh, and we don't uh, fight for uh, every deal and things like that. in fact you know in many a case we are the first institutional investor investing in the company and and we want to discover these uh, you know interesting companies that's what we look for uh, if we get into a competitive situation we may not actually win and we don't mind that uh, uh, you know, uh, we have a set process and we, we go through that and we don't have the pressure to prove ourselves or we don't have the, um, you know, uh, pressure to uh, get the maximum returns for our investors and things like that. We believe that this is a uh, you know, long-term game. It's a marathon and having a systematic process, having a, a, a deliberate, disciplined approach to this, having uh, certain principles of doing these things. That's what matters. And that's what we have done in Infosys and that's what we do at Axelor. It's very interesting to see, especially in today's world, having that discipline as an investor is so important. And this kind of also goes back. Somebody once asked me, why do investors have investment thesis? Like when, do they, when they pitch to their LPs, what are some things that they put together? And you kind of highlighted some of these in your discussions as well. Discipline, it's kind of knowing what areas to focus on, what are your key strengths, where can you compromise and where can you where you do not want to compromise. All of this kind of sets the tone for the brand, as you previously mentioned, which is extremely important. And, uh, you know, speaking from that perspective, I'd like to understand a little more about Axelor's portfolio and how you have gone on uh, as a team to develop this brand in for, for both the short haul as well as the long run. What have you learned so far from your seed portfolio and the data that it's shown? What's the biggest opportunities and the problems that the portfolio kind of presents to you today? And how do you see that in the next, say, 12 to 24 months? Um, see, currently, of course, uh, all of us are uh, uh, sing single-mindedly focused on uh, helping every company, uh, you know, kind of, cross the hurdle of uh, this COVID situation, uh, making sure that they have uh, sufficient cash uh, to, um, to see the light at the end of the tunnel, they survive and things like that. Uh, having said that, um, see, it, you know, it, it's about, um, uh, you know, trying to help these companies as um, uh, well as you can um, and when you find that, um, uh, let's say, in spite of all the things that you've done, in spite of all the things the company's, company has done, founders have done, et cetera, sometimes, you know, you're not at the right place at the right time, you know, you're, uh, 
not uh, you know your timing is not right uh, the the uh, thesis that you had uh, didn't work out and so then you look at uh, how can you now do a soft landing uh, even that is very very important you know can you uh, do an acute hire can you uh, salvage the situation um, you know you don't uh, want to you know any stakeholders. So we look at runway quite carefully, uh, and and we look at early early morning signals. Uh, if uh, we find that uh, you know the company is running out of cash and uh, is unable to raise um, you know new round of funding, etc., uh, we we try and bring it down you know to a soft landing as much as possible. Uh, you know this is a very very complex uh, you know situation we have had interesting examples you know three founders uh, all uh, bachelors when they started the company suddenly uh, one person decided to marry and he said now i need double the income that i get overnight and the other two founders were not willing to actually uh, increase uh, the compensation suddenly right uh, and the and the team split right so you know you have to take care of uh, uh, emotional issues, personal issues, all of these things are real uh, when, when uh, especially when you work with early stage companies, et cetera. And, and managing all these things is very important. Uh, our learning is every company is different. Every situation is different. Yes, you can have your thesis, et cetera. But when it comes to human beings, every situation is different. And that's how you need to look at every company that you're working with. And if you're able to uh, work with them with empathy, with understanding. Uh, you know, uh, like I said, you know, we all know that uh, the odds are out of ten companies, probably you know one will uh, do very well and get most of your returns. Maybe two, three will give you some additional returns, and the remaining you may have to write off or uh, may return your money. Right, so. You know that's that's odds, and that's how you work with these companies. And uh, if something fails, you know you 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 try to uh, again make the best out of the situation for all stakeholders. See, uh, our philosophy is about uh, uh, helping uh, the founders, helping the stakeholders, helping the ecosystem, uh, doing the right thing, and helping everybody. That's how we have been looking at it. You know. Fortunately for the founders of Axelor, uh, you know, we have uh, enough uh, wealth. Uh, this is something that we are doing as a way of, uh, yes, uh, being engaged, uh, but also uh, giving back. That right. probably helps. No, you're absolutely right. You know, relationships go a long way and trying to understand, especially from a portfolio support perspective, trying to understand the little challenges that one goes through um is 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 is, is kind of like the core responsibility of the vc as well and speaking from my own personal experience as one of our portfolio companies who i uh, directly have a relationship with and um, she was going through a personal situation and she kind of went awol for uh, three months and nobody could really get in touch with her and we were really surprised about what happened then we got to know that there was a sad passing in her family and that kind of made uh like set the company back a few months set the company herself back a few months and for her to get back from a mental perspective also took her a lot of time. So really building those relationships with um, with your founders in the portfolio is, is extremely important, as you mentioned. And as an extension to that question, what are the core economics of venture capital 
that entrepreneurs today don't understand, which is really important from a VC lens as well, especially when they're reaching out to you, either through an accelerator or directly for funding themselves, what don't they really understand? And where is that gap in the industry that we can bridge together? So, you know, I'm not familiar with other markets. I'm familiar with India. And uh, one challenge I see is, um, you know, this uh, idea that uh, every uh, startup is a, a highly scalable, investable uh, startup. Uh, I find that, uh, you know, most of the startups shouldn't actually take external funding or if they take external funding, take a very limited minimum funding to prove themselves to be a profitable entity. So, um, you know, we, we look at uh, a company and say, you know, just become a small, successful, profitable company, and that's success. Uh, very few actually will create a business that's highly scalable. And VCs invest in these highly scalable companies because, as I said, uh, you know, out of 10, maybe one or two actually give you good returns, right? And they give you good returns because they become highly scalable. Uh, they can grow very rapidly. Um, so from stage to stage, you know, they, you know, the the their um, market cap, uh, uh, you know, multiplies by three times, five times, ten times, etc. That can happen only if um, you know they they're growing by you know leaps and bounds, exponential growth, etc. Uh, if your growth is linear. Uh, try and become profitable. If your uh, growth is uh, exponential, that's when the VCs are interested in investing. Many startups, actually, many entrepreneurs actually don't think about this. You know, they think that uh, just because they have a good idea, just because they have actually found some mar market fit and things like that, that uh, they are a uh, investable uh, startup, and they struggle with that uh, for too long, actually rather than trying to become a profitable company. And then you don't require actually external investment. I believe that uh, taking external investment, equity investment should be your last resort, not your first resort. Uh, and, uh, and, and I think that's a message uh, I have been personally, you know, in various forums actually talking about uh, uh, that, uh, you know, only if you are very sure about uh, the scalability of the business, sure about exponential growth, uh, you have a roadmap for that, uh, then you take external funding. That's a very fantastic point that you raise here, sir, because you know, even when businesses are doing well and they perhaps don't want to take VC money, there is pressure from the VC industry sometimes to you know, work with some of these leading investors. How does an entrepreneur today, in spite of you know, having a very successful business model, shy away and say no to venture capital when there are a lot of people surrounding the founder suggesting that VC should be a way for you to go because say an X, X investor or, or this ventures or that ventures is going to really help you scale and get to the next stage going against the conviction that the founder already has. You know, uh, that's what I'm saying. You know, you have to, um, you know, Kind of work on this message and you have to make sure that that message gets across um, one is to the ecosystem second is to the companies that uh, you're working with uh, so for example at axelor you know if, if, uh, in the second round if um, there is no 
uh, validation from an another investor, we also don't invest. Okay. Right. The uh, first investment is the only round we participate, and we tell them actually now try and uh, see whether you can become pro profitable because you are not able to raise any more funding, and we are also not going to invest anymore, and we okay. will help you become profitable. And there's nothing wrong. See, in any economy, uh, you know, majority of businesses are MSMEs. Right. Uh, in any economy, majority of the employment is in the MSME sector. Uh, they are the backbone of an economy. Uh, you know, in India, for example, I know that the average number of employees in an enterprise is 20. What does that mean? That means majority of the companies are MSMEs, uh, right? Uh, so they are a backbone, and, and we need uh, we need a large number of MSMEs because again, data proves that um, uh, employment is generated in the first five years of setting setting up a new business. Mm -hmm. So what happens is initially, uh, you know, from zero to one to 10, et cetera, they grow, um, you know, fast. And then they hit a plateau, uh, which is the uh, uh, plateau of their uh, uh, growth. And that's why majority of the businesses stay as MSMEs. Right. Uh, and, uh, and then uh, very few migrate to becoming mid-sized companies or large, very, very few become large companies. Uh, and uh, and hence uh, the employment generation also stops. So it's in the first five years of a new business being created, employment is generated. And that's why you need large number of new businesses to be created in any economy for economic growth. Uh, but all of them are not going to become uh, highly scalable, investable companies. They're right. MSMEs. No, this actually ties back to the earlier point that you made. You know, we talk about um, protecting companies, MSMEs in this case, we talk about policy making, we talk about uh, how we as venture capitalists can also be a little more conscious in terms of going after businesses that uh, that might not require capital for that perspective. So today with when in the, the seat that you're that you're sitting in where you have the opportunity to really influence some policy making in India, what should the country be thinking about in terms of the ecosystem from a 10 year lens? You know, today at 2020, we sit and we talk about how venture capital and how the startup ecosystem has grown from 2010 to 2020 and the boom that is created. What can we do from a policymaking perspective today so that in the next 10 years, India is at a very different stage altogether and we can really support some really interesting and in, in, in newer businesses and have more you know, flourishing ecosystem both at the mid stage as well as um, you know, within the startup ecosystem? So first of all, you know, getting this message across to all the stakeholders and government saying that uh, any new business is a startup. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and uh, most startups end up as MSMEs and, uh, and, and, and uh, that's what we need to tell uh, these entrepreneurs, right? Uh, uh, you, you should uh, learn to become profitable, you should survive. And then you, take a uh, step towards scaling up if the market and if your product uh, allows you to do that. Uh, so I, I see this as a two-step process. And, uh, and, and so, um, you know, I have a big challenge when uh, there are separate policies for the so-called quote-unquote startups and separate policies for MSMEs. Uh, I, I always say that uh, there should be a single policy for all startup businesses. Some end up as uh, 
highly scalable startups. Some end up as MSMEs, right? Uh, and and we should uh, uh, treat them uh, the same. Uh, both are required for uh, an economy uh, to flourish and grow, etc. Uh, typically, the highly scalable uh, startups have a technology element because that's what allows you to scale. Uh, so your growth is disproportionate uh, to the investment that you are making, and that's why they they're growing exponentially. Right. Uh, whereas if your growth is proportional to the investment you're making, you're growing linearly. And that's what ends up as an MSME. And that's what we need to um, look at. And, uh, and, and for highly scalable startups, uh, you need to think about a set of policies which allow them to um, give ESOPs, uh, uh, look at... Um, uh, has look at uh, you know how do you encash ESOPs, capital gains for founders. You know there are several uh, policy things that we need to do uh, to encourage these highly scalable startups to flourish, etc. Uh, India definitely has a challenge because um, uh, many of these startups, when they reach a stage where the risk is less now, that is Series C, Series D, uh, they actually change their registered office from India to an, another country. Right. Uh, and and uh, and we lose those uh, companies in some sense, we, you know, because the registered office is now different. So we talk about, um, you know, how can we now create the best um, uh, ecosystem for these companies to scale, maybe do their IPO in India, etc. So this is an ongoing process. We have come a long way. Uh, this whole process of startups is. Uh, probably about 12, 15 years in, in, you know, old in India. You know, remember that Flipkart, if I remember right, was started in 2007 or 2008. Right. You know, that's the, you know, the, the first big uh, exit that you can think of in India. That's only started about 13, 14 years back. So this is a very young ecosystem. And we have come a long way. Uh, that's a great point that you make because we, as we head towards you know, 2022, 2023, where we might see a lot more exits from companies that were founded in earlier part of the decade, uh, we will see a lot more regulatory sort of uh, reforms that will start coming in from the government perspective as well. And I think that will really help and provide more encouragement both to the VC industry as well as the startup industry to, to take it upon themselves to ensure that they can sustain and build this in the long run. And uh, in fact... Mm -hmm. This is an ongoing thing, you know, every, in every economy, uh, you know, the, the models change, the uh, regulatory frameworks change, uh, and there is always constant uh, struggle between uh, uh, regulation and innovation. Uh, and that you see even in the US now, uh, you know, the new model is SPACs, right? Yeah. Um, which is, uh, I forget the, what is the full form for SPACs, but... Uh, special purpose uh, acquisition uh, companies. Acquisition companies, right. The special purpose acquisition companies. That's the new way of going public and all that stuff. Uh, then there is this uh, clamor about uh, uh, the, the 230, right? Uh, regulate, the, yeah. the regulation 230, right? Which uh, protects these social media companies from... Uh, uh, getting sued for uh, content and things like that. Right. So this is a constant struggle in every uh, every um, state, actually. And that's true in India also. 
uh, as um, you know we we get new models or as we innovate uh, we'll have to look at the regulation again to see whether regulations need change i'm actually glad you brought up the topic of spacs because our spacs one way of retaining businesses in india because one of the points that you made was you know once companies grow beyond the EF levels they're looking to enlist themselves in a different country and they probably look to go public somewhere else is that a way to salvage and save indian startup industry especially when companies are heading towards ipo or thinking about some sort of an exit uh, do you think spacs in india which has not been talked about as much as it's been talked about here in the us markets for obvious reasons so um first of all uh, india has allowed uh, direct overseas listing you know previously that was not possible you have to list first in india and then only can do an overseas listing mm-hmm. but now uh, you know that change has been made uh, you know i i do not know whether uh, spacs and what form the spacs are allowed in india i don't know whether the regulation allows you to do that so i'm not clear Okay, uh, so this is something that I actually want to explore going forward as well, trying to see how the uh, exit scenarios in India will really turn out in the coming decade, and may probably in the next five years we'll have so, a lot of answers to this. Most of the larger exits have been actually acquisitions by larger company, uh, and and that's uh, what we are seeing today. Uh, we need some companies to do IPO, uh, uh, and. Um, and i tell these uh, founders actually you know um, uh, rather than uh, actually selling to an overseas uh, company or an overseas investor why don't you actually uh, sell to the indian public and make sure that the public benefits from your success and the larger population benefits from your success when you know today the scenario is that um, it's a small number handful of people who benefit from your success right Uh, but uh, if you do an ipo the larger public can participate in your success and so we need some examples of ipos in india is it almost to say it's it's not cool to go public because big companies are no 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 it's, i know now of uh, several companies that are thinking of ipos so i'm hopeful that uh, you will see a slew of ipos in the next 3 years and are these later stage companies or are we also thinking about companies that are probably later you know, stage later they're, stage they're, yeah they are typically series c series d right now um so now they can start thinking about uh, their exit strategy and many of them are thinking about ipos which is good i hope that they do they succeed spectacularly and uh, the public sees the benefit from these startups fantastic i think that's a wonderful point to uh, make a segue into my last segment which is a rapid fire which I, where i want to put you on the spot and shoot some really quick questions at you and uh, try and understand the investor persona um that is that is you so if you are okay with that i'm going to start uh, off with the first question which is what is the hardest thing about being in venture capital today you know hardest thing is it's a long term game it's not a short term game and uh, you need patience i strongly believe we need patience uh, uh you need to um you know think of this as uh, a a marathon right you know we we you touched upon this particular question in multiple ways on on this episode but if there's one particular thing that you would like to see change within the indian vc ecosystem what would that be uh clearly you know we want uh, 
you know, um, large Indian funds, uh, when you go beyond series C, series D, 95% uh, of the money comes from outside India, mm. unfortunately. Right. Right. So the ownership actually becomes uh, global or uh, non-Indian. Right. So I would like to see, there is money in India. It's not that we don't have the money. We yeah. don't have the wealth. So I would like to see a uh, lot more billion dollar funds which are created with Indian money. More domestic money means more domestic money recirculated back into the country. Right. And therefore, it's good for the ecosystem in the long haul. That's a, that's a good point that you make as well. Now, uh, this, I guess, is a more of a personal question. Now, if you were to go back to being 25 again, when you started Infosys, what were some things that you would maybe not do? Um, and if there's something that you could perhaps change or one thing that you fear change from, from the past? Unfortunately, or fortunately, um, you know, everything has worked out well. I've been uh, lucky right. and uh, I wouldn't change anything. Fantastic. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I can't think of anything as well. I mean, coming with, with the track record that you have, I, I don't think there's, which is why I was really curious to understand if there's something that you think, looking back, you could have. So uh, one thing, probably, uh, now that you say this, Mm -hmm. um, I started, uh, you know, my philanthropic activities only in the last six years. Uh, I think uh, this habit of giving back, even just to volunteer time, etc., mm -hmm. must start from an young age. Right. Uh, you know, sharing your knowledge like you're doing, etc., uh, must start with at a young age. You know, the habit of giving back. So that I kept to very late in my life. You know, I started doing that when I was sixty. That's, that's a great point that you that you make here as well. Now, this ties in well to something that you mentioned in the beginning of the podcast about your life, your time as an entrepreneur, your time as a VC. But today, if you could form a board of directors for your personal life, who gets a seat in that? That's something I'm uh, thinking uh, because um, I need to now institutionalize my um, family uh, investment vehicle as well as my family philanthropic activities. Uh, I've been doing this with a very small team, but I need to now create a board. I'm thinking about it. I've not found the answers yet. I have, you know, a lot of people I learn from, respect, uh, and and I I learn from every interaction I have. Uh, I'm always looking to learn. Uh, that's not what we need from a a board. A board is something that sustains itself. So I need to think about uh, multi-generational, uh, long-term uh, survival of these uh, entities, right? The right. family fund as well as the family philanthropy. You know, if you look at uh, you know some of the uh, best-known uh, you know philanthropic organizations, they are there uh, for you know multiple generations. So. I need to start thinking. So that means we need to create a self-sustaining uh, board. Right. Uh, and, and that's what I'm thinking about. Now, if I were to rephrase that question and say, who is the one person that if you were to point out and say has had the biggest influence in your life, personally or professionally, who would that be? So that's what I'm saying. You know, it's uh, very hard, very hard to pick. Yeah. You know, you learn from everybody. You respect somebody for some things, you know. Uh, for example, you know, if, if you look at... Um, uh, Steve Jobs, you respect him for certain things. You look at mm -hmm. uh, Satya Nadella, 
you know, it's amazing how we have transformed Microsoft, right? Uh, uh, so you, you uh, learn from uh, everybody you come across and I, I learn every day, you know. Uh, so morning when I do exercise, um, and every day I try and do about an hour of exercise. I listen to podcasts, mm-hmm. right? And uh, and I have a notebook uh, by the side actually. And I hear something uh, in the podcast. I write it down in my notebook. So I learn every day. And I try to learn every day. Now that's actually a very um, strong takeaway for people listening to this episode as well. Um, you know, because my next question to you was going to be, if there's one book that you could recommend to our listeners, it could be anything, doesn't have to be business, doesn't have to be anything. What would, what would you recommend um, somebody to read? And what's your personal favorite, I guess? Well, uh, let me say, um, uh, you know, uh, one book that changed my uh, uh, direction of uh, uh, you know, let's say um, philanthropy changed my direction of, um, or inspired me to get into healthcare uh, is the book, uh, uh, The Brains That Change, or Brain That Changes. I'm I'm trying to um, remember the exact name, actually, you can look it up, actually. Uh, It talks about the uh, plasticity of brain. Okay. And that uh, inspired me to actually uh, read a lot about uh, brain sciences. Uh, I've, uh, you know, committed a significant amount of money from my philanthropy to support research on brain aging, aging-related disorders, and and that has expanded now to uh, make uh, healthcare as a vertical. That I'm actually spending a lot of time, both as as a philanthropist, as, as, as an investor. Uh, I have um, uh, startups in that area. So these are not uh, startups that somebody else has started. These are startups that I have triggered off and with, where I hold uh, significant equity as a percentage equity. And so all that got triggered with just reading one book. Fantastic. So I'll post the link uh, in the episode notes for all the listeners as well. And lastly, sir, before you leave us, uh, what is one piece of advice that you would love to give to our founders uh, who are listening to this episode uh, from all the time that you've been, both as founders as well as an investor, if they had to take one thing away in terms of fundraising, in terms of building companies, what is that advice that you'd like to give them? See, I've been lucky in that uh, uh, I was at the right place at the right time at the beginning of the digital computing uh, industry. Uh, I was part of uh, uh, how digital computing changed lives of uh, people, created new businesses, uh, part of building that industry. Whatever small you know, uh, thing I could do in that. Uh, I strongly believe that the next 30 years, uh, I know I started working in 1979, so it's about 41 uh, years actually. But the next 30, 40 years are going to be even more exciting. I feel that um, uh, we have multiple drivers for change today, multiple uh, disruptive technologies that can change everything, every industry. And uh, the next 30, 40 years are going to be even more exciting than the last 30 years. So my question to everyone uh, is, uh, what role are you going to play uh, in driving that change? Uh, I think that must be 
uh, your personal uh, uh, mission uh, purpose actually uh, because you have the opportunity to play a big role uh, in making that happen and and uh, and you know look at what excites you look at what you're passionate about look at what you're good at uh, uh, look at uh, what uh, uh, impact that you'd have. Uh, money is a result of creating impact. It's not the purpose. The purpose has to be, how are you going to create impact? How are you going to make a uh, change happen? How are you going to transform society? How are you going to help others? How are you going to leverage this opportunity to make uh, an impact? And that should be uh, you know, my message. And that's what... I have been lucky to have done. And, uh, you know, I'm talking to you because of that, right? So that's what I would say uh, you must all uh, uh, set your goal as. I think that sums up the Axlaw brand also perfectly in terms of what it looks to, or is looking to accomplish in the years to come. And that's a wonderful note to end the podcast on. Sir, this has been a brilliant session for me personally. I'd like to thank you so much for your insights and time. You've been generous with both. And I personally feel super inspired and educated after this episode. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Agash, and all the very best. Now that brings us to the end of this wonderful episode. I'd like to take a moment here to just decompress and take in all the insights shared by Chris. Thank you so much again, Chris, for sharing some deep thoughts about the Indian VC ecosystem and what we can do as VCs to advance the industry going forward. Your insights are incredibly valuable and I'm sure every one of us listening are incredibly enlightened by all the thoughts that you've shared. If you're like me and you enjoyed that episode as well, please go ahead and rate us and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. Before we leave you, I want to remind you of Plug TV, which is India's first mobile storytelling platform for meaningful stories by unfound mobile creators. Do check them out at Plug.tv and learn more about the content. And if you're a startup working in the future of workspace, I would really urge you to look up Pathway Ventures, a new venture capital fund focused on the human side of future of work. They are investing in companies that drive economic mobility through innovative models of earning, learning and community building. There's more information about both these organizations in my episode notes section below in the podcast. So do check them out. This is a very, very busy month in terms of the number of episodes that I have lined up. So please tune back in again next week to listen to who we have in store and what they have to offer. So until then, continue to keep hustling and take care.